Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it's no news to those who being who've been paying attention to the news, which is no news, that once again, folks up in Washington, D.C., at least some, are trying to uh, find a way to make a deal with the Republicans on Capitol Hill to do something about guns in America. If you don't know why, go watch the news. And the uh, consensus seems to be, once again, that uh, there's no deal available. I'm not so sure. I think if um, if the president <laughs> proposed this, that uh, the prevalence of guns in America was to be promoted as an advantage rather than as some sort of problem um, we could probably recruit some uh, call them gun tourists for, from overseas who you know feel feel kind of restricted by the restrictions in their home countries and um, as they arrive in immigration centers somehow they are provided with access to guns and um, certain percentage of them I think you'll agree might be likely to shoot up the detention center and I think Republicans would like that just a thought just to just try to help just always try to heal hello welcome to the show Remember what I said, and I'll be. 
I will get my props before my final bow. Just in case I have hedged my bets, I guess you know that by now. Thanks again for dropping on aisle two From Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. The leader of the La Luz del Mundo megachurch, you know that means the light of the world, pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting three minors, and that happened just days before he was supposed to go on trial in Los Angeles. Just east of here, Naason Joaquin Garcia pleaded guilty to two counts of forcible oral copulation involving minors and one count of a lewd act upon a child who was 15 years old at the time, according to the California Attorney General. Garcia is the self-proclaimed apostle of La Luz del Mundo, the light of the world in Espanol. He was arrested June two, uh, three years ago. That took a while, and accused of participating in human trafficking and child rape. He was arrested alongside his associates, Susana Medina Oaxaca and Alondra Ocampo. They were all charged with a total of 29 felony counts. That's a busy church. Oaxaca also pleaded guilty this week in court, was convicted of assault likely to cause great bodily injury, According to the Attorney General, Ocampa pleaded guilty two years ago to three felony counts of contact with a minor for the purposes of committing a sexual offense. And one count I'd rather not describe on the radio or on your audio device of choice. case was thrown out on a technicality two years ago before it got reinstated. Yes, me too. I'm wondering what that technicality might have been. Uh, but, but otherwise, state prosecutors accused Garcia of coercing underage girls into performing sex acts by telling them that refusing would be going against God. See, it's, it's worth starting a church just to be able to say that. The prosecutors alleged that Garcia forced the victims, who were members of the church, that was convenient, to sexually touch themselves and each other. One of his co-defendants allegedly took nude photographs of the victims and sent the pictures to Garcia. I guess he just wanted to be a witness. He told one of the victims and others in 2017 after they had completed a flirty dance wearing, quote, as little clothing as possible, unquote, that kings can have mistresses and apostle of God cannot be judged for his actions, according to the state's allegations. If that's true, we all should start a church. 
have a much happier... Oh, the Catholic Church in New Zealand says 1,680 reports of abuse were made to it between 1950 and 2021. These reports were were made by 1,122 individuals against clergy, brothers, nuns, sisters, and lay people. The church said 592 alleged abusers were named. Almost half of the reported abuse was sexual. Recently published research found most of the abuse alleged against priests and brothers were for sexual harm against children. Allegations against sisters and nuns was for non-sexual harm, your physical, emotional, or psychological abuse, and or neglect. Information was based on records of abuse made to the church up to uh, the end of June last year. So there's been more even more. Says um, the head of the uh, organization representing the country's six dioceses and over 40 religious congregations in New Zealand, we must ensure that people are safe in the care of the Catholic Church today and that survivors are supported when they come forward. We recognize the Church's continuing efforts to eliminate abuse through safeguarding efforts and making redress for the past. Unquote. So they got to address again. And no, that's not what that means. The uh, president of the New Zealand Catholic Bishops Conference, Cardinal Drew, Cardinal Dew, said the church acknowledged there were significant barriers to people coming forward to discuss abuse. While much work has been done to overcome this and people have come forward, we're committed to doing all we can to reduce currently existing barriers and ensure survivors are supported as they share their traumatic experiences, unquote. Of course, they'll be videotaped. No, he didn't say that. A, another Catholic leader in New Zealand, Father Thomas Rao, said various factors allowed abuse to occur in Catholic institutions. The factors we're addressing most strongly today, he says, are the improved formation of candidates for priesthood and religious life, as well as best practice safeguarding protocols for all involved in Catholic ministry. Um, spokesperson for the Network of Survivors of Abuse, Liz Tonks, said what survivors needed was not a commentary of the figures, but a statement of the specific action the Church was ta- taking as a result. Quote, what we know and what the Church itself states, the figures are not an accurate reflection of the abuse that has occurred within this church. They only reflect the number of survivors that reported their abuse in the church and only those that the church kept a record of. She added the church's failure to keep records highlighted a significant issue for survivors. It denies survivors the information they need to support their claims and to begin to make sense of how and why the abuse happened. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. News of microplastics, ladies and gentlemen. A study conducted by the Technological Center for Aquaculture 
this is in Spain, has analyzed the presence of microplastics in fish. I said fish from Spain's aquaculture industry. This is good news. Recent reporting has noted that microplastics, which are becoming more common in the natural environment, can be found in trace amounts in the digestive, in the digestive tract of fish, but no transfer to the edible parts of fish have been reported. Researchers made the observation after collecting data on water quality, aquafeed, and farmed fish specimens from sites all over Spain. Spain's agriculture industry has taken a special interest in understanding and combating microplastic pollution. So the uh, agency, Center for Aquaculture, the Technological Center for Aquaculture, partnered with uh, the Agriculture Business Association, APROMAR, and launched its analysis on the presence of microplastics in Spain's farmed fish. The analysis was um, carried out on 15 batches, each of them made up of, of 10 individuals. That's 150 fish in total, for those of you keeping track, of the three main species of the study, sea bream, sea bass, and turbo. Mm-mm. They were filleted in the same way that they are for human consumption. They were processed and analyzed. The results found that no microplastic particles have been observed in any of the fish samples analyzed in the study. The feed used to feed the aquaculture animals may contain traces of uh, microplastics. And uh, so you can find microplastics detected in the stomach and guts of fish in minimally detectable quantities, but these parts of the fish are always discarded so there's no risk of microplastics reaching the consumer through this route. Consumers eat the muscle and skin of fish, ugh, and there have been no microplastics detected in those samples, unquote. One for the team. But, on the other hand, what's good for the fish isn't good for the muscles. I mean muscles with two S's. Microplastics are stunting the growth of muscles in Victoria's Port Phillip Bay, according to a study by Royal Melbourne in Institute of Technology marine ecologists. The study's lead author said mussels ingest microscopic pieces of plastic used in cosmetics. Gals, I've been telling you, affecting their ability to grow and reproduce. And I don't mean gals. I mean, late, I mean women. The microplastics travel from our bathroom sinks to the ocean, according to the university, where they're easily confused with algae or seaweeds, by the mussels, that is. They take in the plastic along with their normal diet of algae. Mussels trials were conducted in water of varying microplastic levels. The plastics affected the action of four of the invertebrates' key digestive enzymes, which means they struggle to break down starch into the simple sugars the mussels need to survive. Quote, we don't think the plastic affects muscles directly, but it does reduce their ability to digest the real food in their gut, which means they miss out on energy and nutrients, said the chief researchers. They can't digest food effectively. The muscles can struggle to grow, so they end up smaller. Muscles also need energy to mate and reproduce, which could have serious ramifications for biodiversity where they live. 
besides being a tasty treat for humans. Whoa, I'm hungry just reading that. Mussels play an important role in keeping marine ecosystems healthy. Because plastic can affect their ability to breed, we could see a drop in mussel populations with knock-on effects for other marine wildlife. Apparently, they're not just a tasty treat for us. And now... News of the Olympic Movement! Produced by Jim Ebersol III. Always more Ebersols. Future hosts of the Olympics are being urged not to build any new venues for the Games. The International Olympic Committee is now looking to avoid white elephants. Jacqueline Barrett, future of, the director of future Olympic Games, hosts, has stressed the need for cities aiming to stage the Olympics to use either existing or temporary venues to hold com- competitions to ensure a more sustainable event. This is uh, 2022. <laughs> They're figuring that out. The IOC official also revealed that the organization was asking potential bidders to consider hosting sports outside their own country to avoid having to build new sites. So they'll be hosting, but in a different way. I'm inviting you to dinner at somebody else's house. A study came from the IOC claiming that 85% of all permanent Olympic venues since the Olympics began, the modern Olympics in 1896, remain in use in some way. That report is said to be the first ever official inventory of the post-games use of 817 permanent and 106 temporary Olympic venues across 51 editions of the Games. The IOC is aiming to reduce the number of new venues built for the Olympics in a bid to, quote, become even more sustainable in the future as part of its strategic roadmap in Olympic Agenda 2020. The IOC is not against construction, says Barrett, but insists Olympic organizers must demonstrate a robust legacy plan for any new development. What we're trying to make, what we're trying to do with all the future hosts is to make sure their games project meets the needs of their communities and that there is no construction specifically for the games. What about the uh, moving of the, of the uh, lower income people and their uh, homes out of the uh, out of town. If there is construction and a venue is being built, says Barrett, we've got to be sure this is something the community is doing for itself anyway, whether it is a private or government initiative. But that venue or those venues are going to be there irrespective of hosting the games or not. It's not up to us to determine how a venue should be run if it's already there. Anything that is potentially being built, we need to make sure that it is being done irrespective of the games. We want to make sure that the various stakeholders are around the table and aligned with that use for the future. There is a plan for it that it is going to be used after the games and it is going to be successful. So it won't be a white elephant. LA in 2020 is planning to stage the Olympics without building a single new permanent venue. Well, that just means 
host the game in the same si- games in the same city over and over again. That's how that works. Today, says Barrett, it is the games that adapt to their host, and not the other way around. Even if the host has to sublease it to the next country, you gotta share. Because the Olympics is a movement. And we all need one. Every day. I don't know if um, you you saw on um, the internet, there was a what I guess is called these days a supercut, a mashup of all the time. President Biden made a speech Wednesday night uh, trying to address the guns thing. And um, at several different points throughout the speech, he spoke the word enough repeatedly. A couple times, I think once he repeated it four times. And somebody did a on the internet, of course, did a supercut where every time he said enough was spliced together. So I think it was 17 times all told that he said enough, referring to the necessity to do something about this um, nutty repetition of mass shootings. But as a I suggested at the top of the show, the uh, smart money in Washington is betting that in terms of legislative movement on the gun issue, enough is never enough. Friends love me Cause I'm settled and I'm sane I don't want to hurt them By showing them the crazy state I'm in mm-hmm. The crazy state I'm in crazy state I'm in So I do whatever I can do but it seems that when it comes to you, darling, enough is never quite enough. Fight them, but one thing sure they'll rise back up again. Yes, they will. They'll rise back up again. So you may use sex, pills, or booze, whatever helps to soothe your blues, but you know, enough is never quite enough. Never quite enough 
People seem happy, so they make you think. We all need comfort, a nameless face, early morning dream. An early morning dream. If you want to dim those memories, sit back, relax, and give in, please. But you know, enough is never quite enough. Never quite enough. And if you want to dim those memories, sit back. From Southern California, this is Lachelle and Al. If you've never been to Canada, you may have never heard of a very popular fast food chain. It's big up there called Tim Hortons. Canadians know what I'm talking about. For um, about two years, Tim Hortons, which has uh, restaurants in more countries than Canada, just so you know, uh, they put out a mobile app that surveilled customers constantly by gathering their location data without valid consent. That's according to a Canadian government investigation, a report published this week. The Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada and the Privacy Commissioners from three provinces of Canada presented the results of an inquiry that began shortly after the publication of an article in a Canadian newspaper, the National Post, uh, two years ago. That article revealed the Tim Hortons app tracked location data every few minutes, even when sent to the background. And the report compiled by Canadian privacy privacy officials confirmed that, quote, we found that in May 2019, Hortons released updated versions of its app so it could, with assistance from a U.S. third-party service provider called Radar, track and collect the location of users' devices says the report. For the devices of users who provided their permission, Radar would, on behalf of Tim Hortons, collect and process the user's device location as often as every few minutes to infer the location of a user's home and place of work and when they were traveling and identify when the user was visiting a team Tim Hortons competitor. Oh, oh no! Tim Hortons has almost 5,000 locations in 15 countries, turns out. Started as a burger restaurant, expanded as a chain of donuts shops, and now it's a surveillance chain. 
Oh, it it uh, merged with Wendy's about 30 years ago. Then went independent, then merged with Bur Burger King. Can't make up its mind. Four lawsuits were filed against Tim Hortons, alleging privacy law violations in the wake of the uh, original newspaper article. Privacy rights violated, claimed. Each plaintiff seeks injunctive relief and monetary damages for himself or herself and other members of the class. The investigation concluded that detailed location data had been gathered for the purpose of delivering targeted ads, but was never used for that specific purpose. Instead, the restaurant chain used the info aggregated and de-identified for usage trend analysis after abandoning its targeted ad plan. That being the case, Canadian privacy officials said the data collection was not necessary. The restaurant chain collected a vast amount of sensitive information that wasn't used for a stated purpose and imposed a privacy cost beyond the potential marketing benefits. The report found the app didn't obtain valid consent to use location data and made misleading statements to users that would only collect data when the app was open. In fact, the app collected data whether it was in the background or the foreground, but not when it was quit. The app debuted in 2017. By July 2020, it had been downloaded 10 million times, used actively by about 1.6 million people that month. The app gathered precise GPS location coordinates and related data like timestamps every two and a half or six minutes until the user was determined to be stationary. Tim Hortons clearly crossed the line by amassing a huge amount of highly sensitive information about its customers, said the Privacy, Commi Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Following people's movements every few minutes of every day was clearly an inappropriate form of surveillance. This case once again highlights the harms that can result from poorly designed technologies. Well, that's what it is. Is it poorly designed? A term Horton spokesperson said the company has fully cooperated with the investigations and is working to implement the recommendations. Tim Hortons made the necessary changes already by disabling the radar stuff in August 2020 and removing the library code a month later. We've strengthened our internal team that's dedicated to enhancing best practices when it comes to privacy, said the burger and donut joint. Never too late. And what's the latest goofball story on autonomous vehicles? You know, those self-driving cars that we're going to have three years ago? On an early morning, around 4 a.m., a San Francisco fire department truck responding to a fire tried to pass a double-parked garbage truck by using the opposing lane. You know, like fire trucks do. But a traveling autonomous vehicle operated by the GM subsidiary Cruise without anyone inside might uh, uh, was blocking its path, blocking the fire truck's path. A human might have reversed to clear the lane, the cruise car, Stayed put, this is according to Wired. The truck only passed the blockage when the garbage truck driver ran from their work to move the vehicle. 
This incident slowed fire department response to a fire that resulted in property damage and personal injuries, city officials wrote in a filing submitted to the California Public Utilities Commission. The fire department is concerned that crews' vehicles stop too often and travel lanes which could have a negative impact on fire department response times. It's the most unnerving of a handful of incidents involving cruise vehicles alleged by the city of San Francisco. City officials object to parts of a proposed permit program being crafted by the Public Utilities Commission, which regulates ride hail across the state. Tiffany Testo, I said Tiffany Testo, spokesperson for Cruise, confirmed the incident. She said the driverless car had correctly yielded to the oncoming fire truck in the opposing lane and contacted the company's remote assistance workers who were able to operate vehicles in trouble from afar. According to Cruise, which collects data from its vehicles, the fire truck was able to move forward approximately 25 seconds after it first encountered the autonomous vehicle. Testo says Cruise works closely with first responders, including the fire department, and have been in contact with them regarding this encounter. The fire department confirmed the incident, which involved Engine 12. You know that one. Pre-COVID, the department was in discussions with both electric and autonomous vehicles for training, said a fire department spokesperson. We've been successful with EV training and continue to seek industry training related to autonomous vehicles. Cruise is just one of two self-driving car developers that say they're working in San Francisco to build a... No, it's more than two. To build a safer driving future. Waymo, a spinoff from Google, and Zooks, owned by Amazon, both have a presence on the streets. Now, Cruise is applying for a permit would allow it to launch the city's and the state's first driverless ride-hail service. The experiment could change the way many city dwellers navigate their cities. San Francisco alleges two more incidents, one in late April in which a cruise vehicle traveling through a work zone stopped in a crosswalk and didn't move for five minutes, blocking traffic, and another in April captured on camera in which police officers stopped a cruise vehicle without a driver because it didn't have its headlights on. Car's been drinking, obviously. The filing of um, these reports by San Francisco comes as, as a California state agency is in the midst of writing rules that would allow crews to move ahead with its plans to operate limited but paid ride-hail services across the state. In San Francisco, a new permit would expand Cruz's existing program. It currently allows select members of the public to take autonomous rides between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. in most of the city. If the company wins a new permit, start, it could start charging for those rides, which would still occur at night and not in rain or fog. <laughs> so that would limit it in San Francisco to, you know, four days in the summertime. It would mark the launch of the state's first driverless ride hail service. But San Francisco officials are concerned that the expanded deployment would continue to let cruise vehicles stop to pick up and drop off passengers in travel lanes, you know, lanes where people are driving, instead of pulling over to the curb. Human drivers can be ticketed if they're caught failing to pull 18 inches or closer to curbs before they let passengers in or out. 
But a lawyer for Cruz argued the law allows any car to stop in a travel lane if it's, quote, reasonably necessary, even if there's no human driver behind the wheel. The cruise software does default to pulling over to curbs when safe, the company says, but cars sometimes engage in lawful and safe double parking when it is the only option. City of San Francisco noted that with some conspicuous exceptions, the cruise vehicles are generally cautious and compliant. The fire truck incident is a classic corner case, a road incident so strange or rare it can be hard for self-driving vehicle developers to anticipate it. You know, like the real world itself? Experts say that even as autonomous vehicle software advances, it will continue to run into these flukes. Corner or edge cases are one reason many companies like Cruise hire humans to remotely monitor their driverless technology to intervene from afar if anything unexpected happens on the road. They also help explain why many in the industry, this is according to Wired, now concede that no one will ever build a car that can operate on all roads in all conditions, so-called level five or full self-driving, as opposed to what Tesla calls full self-driving. It's a smart world, but apparently not smart enough. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you may recall on last week's show, I uh, shared with you a recording of a set of remarks by former President George W. Bush in which he conflated what he called the brutal war in Iraq. Uh, He meant in um, Ukraine. That's what he did. He, He referred to a brutal and unprovoked war in Iraq, uh, uh, Ukraine. He made that little boo-boo, which reminds, I've been thinking about it during the week, and it reminds me the misdeeds, or some of the misdeeds of the previous administration right now are the subject of uh, intense investigations, uh, including by a congressional committee, planning to hold hearings this coming week in prime time. Well, it's summertime. Summer prime time. Just a reminder that that war in Iraq that uh, former President Bush momentarily erred uh, from his point of view in describing as brutal and unprovoked resulted in thousands and and perhaps millions of deaths. Um, The near destruction of Iraq at... at, um, had for many years afterwards limited electric service in the capital, um, weakened to the point where it is now a sort of a semi-vassal of its neighbor and one-time enemy, Iran, and that um, the intelligence upon which the decision to go to war was based was faulty and either known to be faulty or should have been known to be faulty because uh, officials in three different countries, U.S., Australia, and Britain, officials inside the intel agencies of those countries, said before the war publicly that what was being touted as intel was incorrect. 
And yet, during the following administration, no investigations, no congressional hearings on that little affair. It cost you and me at least a trillion dollars.
And now, why it's the apologies of the week. Right where I expected. So sorry. The Washington Post this week reprimanded politics reporter David Weigel for a sexist joke that he retweeted and which he ultimately apologized for. His retweet was spotlighted publicly by his colleague Felicia Sonmetz. She recently had a discrimination lawsuit against the paper dismissed. She sarcastically wrote on Twitter that it, quote, is fantastic to work in a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed. Unquote. She attached a screen grab showing Weigel retweet a user who had joked, quote, every girl is bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual, unquote. Sanmez also confronted Weigel in an internal Slack channel. I'm sorry, but what is this, she wrote. The retweet sent a confusing message about what the Post's values are. Others joined the discussion in the Slack channel. National editor Matea Gold wrote, I just want to assure all of you the Post is committed to maintaining a respectful workplace for everyone. We do not tolerate demeaning language or actions. Weigel apologized on Twitter, writing, I just removed the retweet of an offensive joke. I apologize and did not mean to cause any harm, unquote. The Church of Scotland has apologized for its part in the persecution and execution of thousands of people, mainly women, who were accused of being witches hundreds of years ago. That's when they were alive. A motion agreed to the Church of Scotland's General Assembly this week called on the body to acknowledge and regret the terrible harm caused to those accused of sorcery and to apologize for the role of the Church of Scotland in such historical persecution. Reverend Professor Susan Hardman Moore of the Church's New College said the Church needed to apologize for, quote, feeding the witchcraft fury in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. That's a good long fury. Apologizing for historic wrongs, she said, it's not about shouldering the blame now personally for what happened in the past, nor is it about misapplying today's standards to past actors. Rather, apologizing for historic wrongs is about standing in solidarity with the innocents who suffered, acknowledging and regretting the harm that came to them as a result of actions by the church, setting the record straight by affirming the dignity of the people that our forerunners wrote off and acknowledging the suffering caused by past norms and policies that we no longer accept. Importantly, apologizing for historic wrongs can be a step towards reconciling towards those who are alienated now from the church by what the church has done in the past. Unquote. She almost could be talking about slavery. Dayline Riverton, Utah, the Jordan School District is issuing an apology after it printed several transgender students' names incorrectly in their yearbook. Riverton High School seniors called it disrespectful and a permanent mistake that cannot be undone. Unless you reprinted the yearbook. They were... Uh, as the trans community calls it, dead named, meaning their legal name instead of their preferred name. These are basically trans students. Most trans people hate being called by our dead names, says one. Jordan School District has apologized 
and so has the principal of Riverton High School. Students using preferred names in yearbooks is always allowed in Jordan School District with parent permission. The situation that occurred at Riverton High School where a preferred name was not used in the yearbook was an honest mistake and was not intentional. We sincerely apologize for this mistake. I'm not going to reprint the yearbook. French Open Tournament... French... Tennis Open tournament director Amélie Moresmo has apologized for comments she made this week where she said men's matches had more appeal than women's matches. She was fielding questions about why there were nine men's matches in the prime evening slot in Paris compared to just one women's match. The current world number one said she found Moresmo's comments disappointing and surprising. Following criticism, Moresmo issued an apology during an interview with the Tennis Channel which doesn't use the. It's just Tennis Channel. First of all, the comments that I made were taken out of the wider picture, out of the context, and I want to say sorry for the players that really felt bad about what I said. Again, I think the people who know me, who've known me on and off the court throughout my career, throughout everything I've done, know that I'm a big fighter for equal rights and women's tennis, women in general. Deadline Middletown, New Jersey, one of New Jersey's leading political reporters, has apologized for making a joke referring to the mafia and Italian-American mobster Al Capone in regards to uh, the president of the Middletown, New Jersey school board, who happens to be named Frank Capone. He, uh, he's a frequent critic of the New Jersey governor. He wants that governor, Phil Murphy, to reimburse school districts for putting armed police officers in schools, which they're going to start doing in September. His suggestion was highlighted in a political newsletter, New Jersey Playbook. Will Capone arm them with Tommy guns, was the question in the headline roundup. A few hours later, the mayor of the town took to Twitter to criticize the author of the playbook for what he said was a joke about Capone's Italian ethnicity. Within minutes, the writer, Matt Friedman, responded and apologized. He's right. I took an easily headline shot without taking into consideration the ethnic implications. Not even a funny headline. I regret it, Friedman said. Dainline Dallas, a 75-year-old man who was wrongly convicted of crimes he didn't commit, had his name cleared in a Dallas County courtroom this week. This is the 42nd time since 2001 that a Dallas County man has been exonerated. It's not the same man. Mallory Nicholson was convicted of burglary and two counts of child sex abuse in 1982. He was 35 years old when he was sentenced to 55 years in prison. He was released on parole after serving 20. He also served another 20 years registering as a sex offender. Withheld evidence and wrong eyewitness testimony robbed him of 40 years. Now his name is completely cleared with the help of the Innocence Project. We apologize for what happened to you, said Cynthia Garza, Dallas County District Attorney's Office Conviction Integrity Unit member, told Nicholson. Thank you, miss. I accept your apology, Nicholson responded. Thank you very much, said the judge, Chica Anya, on behalf of the state, the justice system, the judiciary, all the players that contributed to this atrocity. I apologize. The words from the district attorney and the judge mean a world to me, and it takes a lot off my mind from 40 years. He said it was just a long fight and wait, but I've always had hope that a day 
would come for me. Credits the support of his wife for helping him endure his long incarceration and never losing hope. He was at his first wife's funeral in another city when the crimes happened. Nothing linked him to the crimes, and there was a different juvenile suspect identified by street name who is now dead. Undisclosed information by prosecutors pointed to another suspect. That evidence should have been given over. It should have been considered by grand jury. He should never have been indicted, to be quite honest with you, and certainly never convicted, says the Dallas County District Attorney. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, finally, some news of our friend the Adam Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. He has been criticizing the slow pace of cleaning up the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. says more federal money is needed to finish the job. Hanford, as you may know, created more than two-thirds of the nation's plutonium for nuclear weapons, like the one dropped on Nagasaki. Left behind was the most contaminated nuclear site in the nation. Inslee wants the administration to request $3.76 billion from Congress for cleanup in uh, the next fiscal year. That would help meet legal obligations, including court-ordered cleanup deadlines. This is an environmental justice issue, said Inslee. Much of the waste is stored in 177 aging underground tanks, some of which are leaking. That's the way you store nuclear waste, ladies and gentlemen, in case you were wondering. And a Japanese court this week ordered a nuclear power plant in Hokkaido to remain offline, as requested by over 1,000 plaintiffs due to safety concerns. In a rare decision issued while the operator is seeking permission from authorities to restart the plant. Clean, cheap, safe to, safe to meter, our friend the Atom. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week at the same time over these same radio stations on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it would be just like enough really being enough if you would agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show shampoo to the San Diego desk. 
to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO-FM for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts before they're all gone, and um, the playlist of the music you heard right here, right now, all, plus much more, much more, much more, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.